You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of a collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled What is Necessary in These Urgent Times? This is Lecture 9, entitled Historical Backgrounds and Personalities, given in Dornach on February 1, 1920. What I have to say today as a further development of my recent lectures will lead us to consider the deeds of individual human beings in history from a specific spiritual-scientific perspective. We are used to thinking of scientific, excuse me, we are used to thinking of significant individuals in history, be they artistic, political, religious, or otherwise, as people whose deeds come out of conscious impulses arising within them, and that this is the sole cause of the actions these people take in the world. And we then consider the questions that arise from this perspective, asking, what did this individual do? What did this individual say? What did this individual bring to other people? And so on. But in the case of significant historical events, the matter is not nearly so straightforward. What is actively at work in human evolution depends upon the driving spiritual forces that stand behind history's unfolding. And individuals are simply the means and paths through which certain driving spiritual forces reach from the spiritual world into Earth's history. This does not contradict the idea that the individuality, the subjectivity of significant persons, has an effect on the larger circles of the world. Their influence is self-evident, but you will have a true understanding of history only if you clearly see that when a so-called great individual says something or another in some place or another, the directing spiritual powers of human evolution are speaking through that person, and the individual is only a symptom of the existence of these driving forces. That individual is the doorway through which these forces enter world history. So if, for example, someone from a particular period of history were to be quoted and you attempted to characterize the influence of those words on the whole of that time period, then, if you were speaking from a spiritual scientific perspective, you would not claim that this individual had only practiced such influence on the world through the force of his or her personality alone. Let me give you a specific example. Let us assume, as we do in short order, that a particular philosophical man was quoted as being especially characteristic of his time period. Someone else could come along and say, well, this person certainly wrote many philosophical texts, but he only had an influence on certain circles. The vast majority of people were not influenced by this person at all. It would be entirely false to reply in such a way. Because the individual mentioned, though also a philosophical figure, 
is simply the expression of certain forces that stand behind him. And these forces then influence and shape other forces in the world. In the individual we see only the expression of what is actively at work in that time period. For example, the following might be the case. At some point in history, there might be some sort of spiritual stream, some sort of spiritual directive at work in the subconscious circles of human souls. This might then find expression in a particular individual, someone who is able to formulate in an uncommonly clear manner things about which larger circles of people, perhaps even entire populations, had only some small inkling. But this person might never write it down and might talk about it with only five or six other people, or might perhaps not speak about it at all. In this extreme case, it could be that centuries later the memoirs of such a person were discovered, and in them had been written things that had never been published or distributed. Nevertheless, those memoirs might contain the characteristic ideas and forces at work in that time period. Whenever I have attempted to describe historical figures, I have always done so from this perspective. I never intended to awaken the belief that an individual's ideas are able to have an effect only when they are administered through the normal lines of propaganda. Rather, I always wanted to demonstrate that we find expressions of the most influential ideas in individual personalities. Of course, accompanying this is the possibility that the important influence of such individuals is not felt during the time in which they are alive. It is, of course, also possible for the exact opposite to be true. Such individuals can have a very large effect on many circles of humanity. But the former point must be made expressly clear so that people do not say to themselves, when one describes an individual as influential and significant in a particular time period, one is speaking only about something happening in some small corner of the human world. I am interested in hearing a description of what was going on for humanity as a whole. I would ask you all to consider all of what I have to say today with this perspective in mind. I have spoken often about the pronounced leap forward in the historical unfolding of humanity that occurred in the 15th century. Anyone who studies the soul life of civilized human beings will find that soul life in the 16th and 17th centuries was radically different than soul life in the 10th, 11th and 12th centuries. I have also often indicated how incorrect it is to say, though it is repeated often, the natural world and historical events on earth do not make any leaps. Such leaps always occur at significant moments in evolution, and one such leap in the evolution of civilized humanity occurred at the transition from the fourth post-Atlantean epoch, which ended in the 15th century, to the fifth post-Atlantean epoch, which we are living in currently and which has only just begun. The entire way of thinking, the entire form of civilized European human thought, was different in a certain sense 
after the 15th century. But the changes that occurred were different for the people of each nation, for the members of each population. Certain transitional phenomena appeared in the various populations of Europe in different ways. Now, we cannot understand the spiritual life in which we currently find ourselves if we do not have a perspective on what has developed in our spiritual life since the 15th century. We must have an understanding of certain characteristic aspects of this newly emerging spiritual life. As always, it is possible to describe only certain individual streams and perspectives. If you consider the time that immediately preceded this fifth post-Atlantean epoch, from the mystery of Golgotha through to the 15th century, you would have to say, during this time, a large number of people in civilized Europe were attempting to gain an understanding, a religious understanding of Christianity. Anyone who makes the effort to study the individual perspectives on Christianity that appeared in Europe from the 3rd and 4th centuries through the 15th century will find that the people of civilized Europe used all of their thinking and feeling capacities, everything they could draw up out of their souls, to understand Christianity in their own way, to gain some understanding of their own about what the world had become through the mystery of Golgotha. After the turn of the 15th century, a set of very special circumstances came about. The first of these, and for those who do not pay any regard to that tall tale, typically referred to as history, but rather pay attention to true history, all of this is entirely clear, was the emergence of what people almost everywhere referred to as scientific thinking. Before then, something altogether different was present. What is seen today as truly scientific had its beginning at the start of the fifth post-Atlantean epoch, and it was expressed with a very particular structure, and one might say it was expressed in several different ways. Actually, what was expressed was always the same, but it received a different minting in the West, in Western civilization, received in Central European civilization. And now the time has come in which these matters must be considered freely, without the influence of nationalistic ideas, in the negative sense that I described yesterday. And, should we want to consider a representative individual living at this time in which a new age was given its spiritual signature, we immediately come upon one especially characteristic of the transition from the 16th into the 17th century the English philosopher Francis Bacon of Verulam. Among those who consider themselves scientific, Bacon is seen as someone who revolutionized our way of thinking. But Bacon is a byproduct, a symptom of something that was entering history in this new age, as I have just described. <laughs> in essence, a wave of new thinking completely washed over the Western world, and Bacon is merely the individual who expressed it in the Western world most clearly. Though we are not aware of it, this wave of new thinking lives in each one of us. The way we think in the Western world, the way we express ourselves regarding the most important matters in life, is Baconian, 
even when people dispute Bacon's points, even when we argue against something he said. It does not have much to do with the content of what we say when offering ideas about a way of seeing the world. It has more to do first with how such ideas reach into the human heart and then how they integrate into the impulses of the world's historical unfolding. (coughs) To make what I have just said clearer, we can cite the following paradox. In these times, one person might be a full-blown materialist and another a full-blown spiritualist, and yet both might very well speak out of the perspective of our materialistic times. There might be no great difference between the two. It does not matter nowadays whether the literal content of someone's words tends toward materialism or spiritualism. What matters is the spirit out of which one practices one perspective or the other. For what actually has an effect in the world is not the literal content of something, but the spirit out of which it comes. That is what has an impact. Only if you are an abstraction yourself will you offer anything to the world solely through the literal content of your words. Now we must note that Bacon, if you examine the spirit out of which his thinking comes, attempted to give a foundation to human knowledge, to science, using spiritual forces that had started to appear in the middle of the 15th century. The forces of knowledge placed at the disposal of human beings in this new age were to become the foundation for science. It was an important time, the beginning of the fifth post-Atlantean epoch, when Bacon came to earth. It was, so to speak, the time in which everything was called into question, for people could no longer develop ideas about the riddles of the world by working with alchemy, astrology, and other old methods, including old religious ways of thinking. There was a drive toward renewal. In what was the presence of this this drive made most evident? Let me read that again. In what was the presence of this drive made most evident? This drive was evidenced in the fact that this time period was a low point for all truly spiritual forces of human understanding. Until the 15th century, it would have seemed impossible to try to grasp something like the mystery of Golgotha with a purely sense-oriented understanding. It was actually held as self-evident that something like the mystery of Golgotha had to be understood as a phenomenon of the highest sort, to be grasped with higher forces of knowing than those used to understand the natural world that is spread out around us. These higher forces of knowing still had a certain elevated place at the time of the mystery of Golgotha. As human evolution progressed, they sank ever lower in human consciousness. And as this new age began at the turn of the 15th century, people no longer had any spiritual forces of understanding. They only had a sense-oriented understanding of the world. With this sense-oriented understanding, Bacon sought to provide a foundation for scientific thinking. Consequently, he rejected all of the research methods that had been recognized as legitimate up to that point 
and held up experimentation as the sole means by which to build up the body of scientific knowledge. <laughs> the large majority of the world is still in this place. We must experiment, we must construct devices and perform experiments, and these experiments must then provide us with our views about the nature of the world. From a spiritual perspective, this translates to the following. Here I have a butterfly. It is too complicated for me to examine this butterfly, so I will meticulously construct a model of it out of paper mache and then examine the model. This is essentially the same as observing living nature through dead experiments, which is no different than replacing a natural living phenomenon with a corpse in the interest of observing the natural phenomenon. Even when we are working in a physics laboratory, we should be aware that we are experimenting on the corpses of natural phenomena. Of course, it is important to conduct experiments and even to examine human corpses. But when examining a corpse, you can have no illusion that it is merely a corpse lying before you. Yet when conducting experiments, we give in to the illusion that we are communicating living truths to us, that they are communicating living truths to us. If you do not already possess the spiritual intuition that allows you to pour into the experiment something of what it is about from out of the living natural world, you will not walk away from that experiment, that dead experiment, with any truths about the living natural world. This would indicate that the way of thinking Bacon introduced was intended from the start to make death the basic principle used to explain the world's being. Now, the peculiar thing is that in the reproductions of the living world achieved through experimentation, one does discover clues about the non-human world. But we must not delude ourselves into believing that any indications about human beings can be won through experimentation. All experimentation leads away from the being of humankind. Thus it has come about that in the intervening centuries, during which that way of thinking so highly developed by Bacon was spread throughout the world, any understanding of the human being and its essential nature, of that driving, active being that exists in the human being's inmost core, was lost. Now, great moral and social will impulses cannot be found without turning toward that essential human nature. As a direct result of Baconian thinking, our understanding of these social and moral will impulses has disappeared during the past few centuries. Consequently, and paralleling the death of our understanding of the world as a result of Bacon's thinking, arose the morality of usefulness. It is a perfectly Baconian definition of morality. A thing is good if it is useful to human beings, either individually or collectively. So as a result of Bacon's thinking, and this was far more pervasive than anyone today can truly imagine, we have a scientific system of thought able to understand only the non-human world on the one hand, and a morality based on aramonic usefulness on the other.
The latter found fuller expression in Thomas Hobbes, a contemporary of Bacon, than it did in Bacon himself. But this sweeping morality of usefulness then became the basis for understanding all of the external non-human world. It washed over all of philosophy from Locke and Hume to Spencer to the natural scientists from Newton to Darwin. Anyone wanting to study the most characteristic parts of what came out of the Western world from its beginnings through to the development of the most recent systems of European thought must begin by studying Baconian thinking. Now something very important is also connected with the Baconian system of thought and morality. It only allows you to examine the non-human world, only allows you to think over morality in terms of what is useful to humans and humankind. This means that by using this system's methods of scientific and moral pursuit, you can achieve nothing in the realm of religion. What was the consequence of this? As a result, the bearers of this system of thought strove to leave religion as it had been, to preserve and propagate it historically, not to offer it any new elements out of a new science of spirit. Bacon himself defended the most characteristic perspective, that science was not to be brought together with religion, for the connection would cause science to become fantastic, and religion was not to be brought together with science, for the connection would turn religion into heterodoxy. And so religion was held at a comfortable distance from scientific pursuits. The new forces, active in civilized humankind since the 15th century, were directed toward scientific pursuits. None of these new forces were directed toward religion. Religion was to be preserved by the forces that had been directed toward it in the past for people feared the new forces that might be directed toward it. They feared that it would become heterodoxy, that it would lose its true content. What was the only thing that could have resulted from the influence of such a system of thought? What actually happened? People strove with a certain truthfulness after science and knowledge of the physical world, strove out of that same truthfulness after a morality of usefulness. But they did not want to strive after religion in the same way they strove after science. Religion was not to be touched. It was not to receive any consideration from this genuine scientific striving. At most, religion was to be studied historically. This is what led to the difference between science and organized religion. This difference can also be explained in stronger language. It can be explained as follows, which is simply a stronger way of putting it, but this makes it more uncomfortable for those who do not like to hear the truth. It can be characterized as follows. People strive genuinely after science, namely a science that reaches out to the physical world. People also strive just as genuinely and earnestly after usefulness, but they do not turn this genuine striving toward religion. For religion must remain unsullied. Science may not touch it. Genuine physical science, genuine drive for usefulness, religion as hypocrisy, religion taken from untruthfulness. This is just a stronger way of putting it.
and is consequently more discomforting for those who do not care to hear the uncensored truth about the difference between science and organized religion. But in speaking in such a strong and definite manner, one arrives at the heart of the matter. And what I have said is truly the defining character of this way of thinking, in which one recoils from the application of science to religion, in which it is not desirable for a science engaged in the study of nature and the like to play a role in religion. For the most part, this way of thinking came naturally to Western civilization. It exists so naturally as a part of it that countless people in Western civilization do not understand that it could be any other way. One simply does not apply natural scientific principles to religion. This is characteristic of the Western world. It is entirely fitting. But now, let us imagine the same impulse shipped over into Central Europe. I can offer you the following representative example. It does not always happen that this system of thought meets an opposition as sharp as the one Newtonian thinking encountered in Goethe. Rather, something like Darwinism, which is oriented only toward the physical body and cannot result in anything other than a morality of usefulness, is taken up by an ancient Central European we might even say Prussian, Central European man, such as Ernst Haeckel. Here, things are a little different than they were in the case of Darwin. In Darwin we see Bacon's thinking carried forward and developed. Darwin regards the natural world through his own Darwinian lens, but he continues to be a believer, just as Newton did. He quietly preserves in himself an old way of thinking in regard to purely religious matters. Now, what about Haeckel? Haeckel takes Darwinism completely into his soul. For him, there is no possibility of dividing his thinking into two parts. For him, there is no possibility of leaving religion untouched. He takes Darwinism, which one can really use to understand only the non-human world. And then with religious fervor, he turns its gaze toward the human world and makes a religion out of it. The two parts become one. A religion results from this union. And in this way, an impulse existing in one place has an effect all over. The impulse remains the same, but it works in different ways, specific to the various regions of the world. In the West, people effectively hold religion and Darwinism separate from one another, bearing them through the course of world evolution. Ernst Haeckel the Central European mixes the two together and serves up a single dish, because for him it simply does not work to hold the two next to one another, but separate. Bacon and his followers, through Spencer and Darwin, feared that religion would become heterodoxy if one were to turn science toward it. Haeckel did not have the same fear. He did the best he could with religion, for he took the same truthfulness used in pursuit of science and brought it to bear on his religious views. The same is true in many areas. Even the Goetheanism in Goethe inwardly opposed an understanding solely of the non-human world. You need only read the prose hymn Nature, which Goethe had at least thought of in the 80s, even if he had not written it down at that time, 
and which has been performed here as a Eurythmy piece. And you will see that Goethe does not think of nature in the same way as Newton or Darwin. Rather, he sees it as inwardly ensouled. There is even some humor in it. Quote, it has thought and is thinking still. Close quote. <clears throat> Throughout his life, Goethe developed ever more concrete forms of these kinds of maxims, which he wrote down in his Fragments on Nature. Recently, an article appeared in a paper here. A continuation of it appeared in this Sunday's paper, I believe, that said that I, when I published the fragment on nature, along with a commentary, in a new edition of the Tiefwater Journal in the papers of the Weimar Goethe Society, back in the 90s, that I emphasized too strongly that the details that Goethe was working through in the prose hymn Nature went on to play a role in his work in natural science. It is strange, the objection raised in this article. It said that there are no natural philosophical ideas in this fragment, but rather religious ones, and that one may not connect the religious ideas in this prose hymn with the later natural philosophical works of Goethe, as I had done. So a pedant, for what else might we call him, has the satisfaction of splitting all those seeking some understanding of humanity in two by telling them that the natural scientific ideas of Goethe are different from the religious ideas. From the very start, this conclusion was drawn in a manner that makes it clear that Baconian thinking lies behind everything this man says. Can we now, I would like to post the question this way, also see another way in which religion and science are differentiated in modern civilization? We can indeed. Certainly, even in England, the land of Bacon, there were men such as Wycliffe and others like him, but this does not have an influence on the actual structures of civilization. In Central Europe, on the other hand, something occurred that had a major effect upon civilization, but whose influence did not reach into the West, for example into France. As the new era began this fifth post-Atlantean epoch, there was no opposition in Central Europe of the sort that occurred in the West, where science was properly founded but not allowed to affect religious concerns, which were to continue in perpetuity as they had up to that point in the old forms of organized religion. In Central Europe, the opposition was instead taken up strongly in the form of the Reformation, and this resulted in that unfortunate event in Central European evolution, the inciting of the Thirty Years' War by the Jesuits, as well as everything that happened because of that war, and everything that followed after that as well. Here we see an example of how the impulse that had arisen during the 15th century became active in religious concerns in Central Europe. In the smallest and in the most significant historical events, we can see that this same impulse is always there, but it is always slightly askew, drawn up out of the particularities of a certain population, of certain individuals, but again and again it is the Western world that leads the way forward, and again and again something significant occurs. 
The farther we look into the future development of the spiritual life in Central Europe in the time since Goethe, the farther we see it moving away from Goethe. Goethe will continue to be studied by the literary historians and others, of course. After all, there is even a Goethe Institute. But Goethe is not present in any of those things. What Goethe actually intended to bring as an impulse into Central European civilization, Goethe and his followers, that impulse sickened gradually during the 19th century. And in the Central European world, just as Darwinism gave way to Hackalism, all of the impulses coming out of the Western world have also gradually sickened. The Western world bears these impulses well, but the Central European world does not. On the one hand, we have Darwin, who in his final work, using principles that are applicable only to the non-human world, gave some indications of the significance that his work might have for humans. But these indications were nowhere near as wide-reaching as the ones that Hackel later worked on. In Darwin's case, the principles of science were applied primarily to the non-human world. In Central Europe, on the other hand, everything went the way that Hackelism went in relation to Darwinism. People tried to fill their entire lives with impulses such as this one. They would not hold apart certain, for example, religious aspects of their lives. They attempted to push these impulses into those areas as well, and the same is true of other similarly distinct areas of life. Those who are older now actually experienced this when the parliamentarianism of England spread throughout all of Europe, with the exception of Prussian Germany, and was taken up just as Darwinism was taken up in Hackelism. Parliamentarianism, as it existed in England, was a good fit for England, for the countries of Central Europe into which it has been transplanted. It is bound up with the same set of consequences that accompany Hackel and Darwinism. The modern age arose under the influence of these things. But we can go deeper still and characterize these historical occurrences in a deeper way. In addition to Bacon, there is another tremendous influence on the modern age in the personage of Shakespeare. For those who are in a position to study spiritual life, to speak of Bacon and of Shakespeare is to allude to the same more-than-earthly source, which is then represented in the earthly, both took the same path into recent evolution, and it is known in spiritual circles that the inspiration for Bacon and for Shakespeare came from the same source. In recent times, where everything has become crude, this has even led some to posit the well-known Bacon theory, which naturally, as it has been proposed, is complete nonsense. But out of the very same fount from which Bacon and Shakespeare drew their inspiration, indeed stemming from the same initiated persons, came the spiritual stream of Jakob Burma and the southern German Jacobus Baldus, into Central Europe. And all that came from Jakob Burma is much more alive in Central European spiritual life than is commonly believed. Here, again, we have a person who gave a form to something that worked its way as fact into the widest of circles, 
even if it was not expressed there in Jacob Burma's words. We must understand clearly that a good portion of Goethe's teachings on metamorphosis can be traced back to Jacob Burma, that a good portion of Goethe's whole organic chemistry came to him from Jacob Burma via certain detours and circuitous routes that can also be easily traced backward. And even though Jacobus Baldus lived in sleepy little Ingolstadt, he too is one of those individuals who, though he did not have a big effect on his contemporaries, gave expression in a very characteristic way to certain things that were felt and thought in the widest of circles in this newly begun epoch. But let us consider the strange depths of these matters. Bacon and Shakespeare, Burma, Baldus, all came from the same source of inspiration. What came from Jacob Burma can still be seen at the core of Central Europe's strivings, but it has grown sick. In its place, Baconian thinking, whether itself or in the form of the later Darwinism, has taken on a position of significant influence in Central Europe. Shakespeare has taken on a similar position of influence. Consider the fact that the entire second half of the 18th century, or at the very least the later portion of it, was influenced by Shakespeare. That 19th century spiritual life in Central Europe was heavily influenced by him, that Goethe in his youth was deeply influenced by him and only freed himself from Shakespeareanism in the 80s. Everywhere we can detect the same paths. Everywhere the impulses are the same. But they work in different ways. In Central Europe the impulses sickened over time. The Western impulses washed over the non-human world. They made religious life into a life of hypocrisy, existing next to and apart from scientific pursuits. And as these Western elements have flooded into the whole of modern civilization, we see that people, even today, have not arrived at a point where they can direct these spiritual powers, the spiritual science stemming from human nature itself that must take hold in modern times, just as the scientific powers directed at the non-human world have done toward religious life. It is time for a new understanding of Christianity, because nothing further can be done with all that has been left untouched thus far. It is time to work on a new understanding with new spiritual powers. The old spiritual powers are used up, and those who believe today that they are at all able to understand Christianity with the old spiritual powers that have been recognized as belonging to religious life, they live in a terrible illusion. It must be said that a new epoch of humanity in which the mystery of Golgotha itself will be understood with new spiritual powers, must come. For everything that has been said about it has outlived its truth and usefulness. It has reached the point of absurdity. It can be pieced together here and there, taken up now and again in such a way that people can treat it as something insignificant, a sort of scientific doesn't-bother-me-any, but humanity cannot live any longer with these things. Humanity needs the strength to draw out from within itself the new spiritual powers that will allow it to understand the mystery of Golgotha in a new way. 
This is what the people of the Western world have seen, that it is incumbent upon them to look through the lens of these new spiritual powers. For in this Western world, people have limited themselves to a simple understanding of the non-human world. This knowledge of the non-human world will never be applicable to the human world. People will have to come to an understanding of a new spiritual science, which will first offer a new outlook on the mystery of Golgotha. What concerns only the non-human world can simply give rise to a morality of usefulness, but this morality will never bring humanity to the heights of its existence. The only thing that will help it achieve this grandeur is a morality that we know shapes us through supersensory powers at work in our souls. Such a morality, however, can never be understood by what little has been left to religious revelation in the Western world, hence the need for renewal. The questions that I have touched upon here may seem to lay, af- to lay far, far above and beyond all aspects of everyday life, but this is not the case. These questions are the most important, world-shaping questions before us right now. And no one will be able to answer the great question, where do East and West stand? Where do Europe, Asia and America stand? Unless we are willing to consider these matters. For when all is said and done, what we are experiencing today are the consequences of everything that has happened in human souls throughout the course of the previous centuries. Because people are comfortable thinking in the way they do presently. They do not want to consider these matters, and consequently we can experience what I will call a terrible heartache, which overcomes us when we hear people nowadays speak about the great misfortunes of these times, about the various structures of contemporary politics or economic life or something of the sort, about the situation in Asia, Europe or the Americas. It is like listening to the blind discussing color, because these people will not direct their gaze toward what lies at the very heart of these great questions. The end of Lecture 9